The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you to turn with me in your Bible to Exodus chapter 1. Earlier in the year, a group of pro-life advocates sponsored a billboard campaign near a Planned Parenthood facility in New York City. On the sign pictured a beautiful African-American girl with the caption, the most dangerous place for an African-American is in the womb. Efforts to raise awareness to the tragically high percentages of African-American abortions was met with great hostility from opponents. The plight of the unborn is a war of convictions that stirs up deep emotions. It's an irreconcilable set of world differences between two worldviews that are illustrated well by our text this morning. The showdown between the Hebrew midwives and Pharaoh helps us see with clarity what is at stake today. On one side is a biblical conviction for the preservation of human life, which is of infinite value in the sight of God. On the other is a secular and man-centered view that life is expendable. This story of courage is fitting today as we consider our calling as believers to defend the unborn and uphold the dignity of life against a culture of death. Please follow as I read Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom, and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. 
the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shiphrah and Puah, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. This is the holy, inspired word of God. Let us pray. O Father, as we approach this heavy matter with hearts trembling, we ask that you would fill us with your peace and your presence, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On August 23rd, 1871, the New York Times featured a story that was headlined, The Evil of the Age. This series of articles helped to transform public opinion and judicial action against a powerful abortion industry that had known prominence and protection in the Big Apple for more than three decades in the middle of the 19th century. One of the fruits of those reports was bringing justice to Madame Estelle, a notorious abortionist and multimillionaire who flaunted her wealth in, in newspaper advertisements and a lavish lifestyle. For weeks, reporter Augustus St. Clair and a lady friend partner went undercover. In the following report, he shined the spotlight on the thousands of infant murders, the back alley, decomposing flesh, the web of deceit, hooking together the symbiotic relationship between abortionists and the politically powerful. Four days after the initial story, a report drew attention to the body of a young woman found stuffed in a trunk in a railway station baggage room. An autopsy proved that the cause of death was abortion. In his book, Prodigal Press, Marvin Olasky goes on to demonstrate well how investigative reporting and strong Christian advocacy helped push abortion underground for the better part of eight decades before its rise back into the mainstream of America in the 1950s and 60s. Well, like Augustus St. Clair, the midwives in our text confront a regime characterized by violence, deceit against the most vulnerable. But unlike this champion reporter from the New York Times, these women did not have the prestige of the press. 
nor the power of public opinion to support them. What they had was much better. The Lord, their God, whose favor rests on those who take a stand for truth and justice. These women model well for us how to take a stand for life with a passion for God, protecting the most vulnerable and persevering against great evil. Now, Exodus 1 opens up as a transition from the book of Genesis, clearly segueing the story of Jacob and his sons as a transition and become established in the nation of Egypt. And the text tells us that while Joseph was still alive, his people had protection. Notice how Israel began to flourish in a land that was not their own. Verse 7 says that they were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. The language here is very similar to the passages we find in Genesis 1 and 9 where God commands Adam and Eve... Noah and his family and all of their descendants to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God delights in his image bearers populating the planet. But then the text says that after Joseph died, a new king rose to power. And perceiving the multiplying Israelites as a threat, executed a new policy of oppression. Nevertheless, the Israelites continued to multiply by the unyielding commitment of the people and the unfaltering courage of the Hebrew midwives. Verses 11 and following tell us that the Egyptian slave masters oppressed the Israelites into forced labor to complete their numerous building projects. Verses 13 and 14 go on to detail how the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly, making their lives bitter with work and brick and mortar and labor in the fields. Nevertheless, the more that the Israelites were worked ruthlessly, the more the people multiplied. Their unyielding commitment to obey God's command to increase and not decrease caused them to flourish under very harsh conditions. Even in the midst of severe hardship, they appropriated and received the great blessing of God. Rather than hoard their possessions and limit their family sizes to save their meager resources, they trusted God to provide for their families. But we see the same passion in the people in the character of our two heroes, the Hebrew midwives, who earn the rare distinction of having their names recorded here in this text. Now, we believe that they were not the only midwives Israel had, but more likely the, the senior supervisors of a great guild of labor and delivery nurses. Well, Pharaoh, when he saw that his tactics of oppression were not yielding the results he desired, he put pressure upon the midwives, ordering them to do his dirty work for him, to kill the baby boys. Unintimidated by Pharaoh's command, these brave women let the boys live. The text says that the women feared God, reminding us that the person who fears God 
can face any threat, stand up to any menace, no matter how terrifying. The plagues that ravaged the Roman Empire in the 2nd and 3rd centuries A.D. that reduced populations by one-third or more during this very age is when Christianity and the church flourished, even as the rest of society diminished into deplorable conditions. Even as the pagans were fleeing plague-ridden towns, it was Christians who rushed in, who stayed behind to nurse the sick, not only their own, but their unbelieving neighbors as well. Their fear of God and their hope in eternal salvation gave them great courage to face the miseries of death and disease. Professor Rodney Stark, a sociologist, writes in his book, The Rise of Christianity, that this was one of the key components, well, actually one among many, of how the church grew for over 300 years, growing at a rate of 40% every decade over that period. He attributes their unyielding commitment to life as one of the reasons for the Christian's high survival rates. It turns out that basic nursing care for people who were suffering from the plague cut the mortality rate by two-thirds or more, obviously leaving behind more surviving Christians. And for the pagan survivors who were more likely to convert and adopt the ways of those who had showed them the love of Christ. Professor Stark goes on to tell us that it was the church's commitment to marriage and childbearing that helped also contribute dramatically to its growth and becoming a larger and larger percentage of the Greco-Roman Empire. You see, at that time, the Roman Empire was declining in population, in large part due to its low view of marriage and the raising of children. As far back as 131 BC, the Roman censor exhorted the Senate trying to compel them to make marriage compulsory because so many men, especially in the upper classes, preferred to stay single. In 59 BC, Julius Caesar was able to pass legislation, grant land rights to men who fathered three or more children. Now, that's a public policy I could hardly support. The later emperors adopted the same tactics, trying to offer incentives for the bearing of more children, but nothing worked. Childlessness remained. In fact, by the beginning of the Christian era, Greco-Roman fertility had gone below replacement rates, not unlike modern-day Japan and other industrialized Western nations. The Romans had to increasingly depend upon the immigration of the barbarians to provide workers for their labor forces, to fill in the gaps in the ranks of their armies, and support an aging population. Professor Stark also records that the decline of the Greco-Roman population was further accelerated by the cultural preference for baby boys and its harsh treatment of women. Boy-girl birth ratios were 131 boys for every 100 girls, even higher than modern-day China with its one 
child policy. Baby girls were routinely exposed to perish on the dump heaps. In fact, little girls were also normally given in marriage at the age of 12 or younger. Women who were pregnant were oftentimes forced into abortion by their husbands who had the legal right to do so. Other women chose this sad option to avoid financial problems and social ostracism. And of course, in the days before germ theory, many of these procedures resulted in the death of the woman or for those who survived were left sterile, further contributing to the problem of depopulation. In his book, Professor Stark points to several factors that are part and parcel to the Christian worldview. They can help us explain the, the dramatic growth of Christianity, of making up a larger and larger percentage of the Greco-Roman culture. The church's stance against abortion infanticide by raising the average age in which a girl got married and up into her mid or upper teens, by protecting widows from being forced back into undesirable marriage situations. All of these factors serve to improve conditions for women who enjoy higher fertility, more stable marriages, and better community support. All resting on the foundation of an eternal hope with which to endure the miseries of this fallen world. Two world views. One based upon materialistic self-protection, greed. One that is rooted in a denial of God, takes a low view of man and women one that's based upon fear of the future, another worldview based upon sacrificial giving, self-denial, joy in God, respect for human life, and bright hope for the future. Two worldviews, one that sees man primarily as a consumer, that that fears world overpopulation, and the depletion of the earth's resources that elevates the concerns of the environment above the dignity of people versus one that sees man primarily as a producer, called to cultivate and till the earth and to trust in God for the resources and for the space for humans to flourish. Two worldviews. One that sees marriage as a contract, as merely optional for the flourishing of society. One that sees children as a drain upon coveted resources, that adopts deficit spending as just a way of life, versus a view that marriage is a covenant ordained by God for the good and order of society, for the blessing in the raising of godly children that's rooted in self-restraint, conservation, staying away from debt and giving to the poor as proper stewardship of God's resources. I hope the choice is clear. 
Well, seeing that his orders to the midwives were not being carried out, Pharaoh called these women to account. He asked them, why had they let the little boys live? The Hebrew midwives' response shows that the protection of the vulnerable is a matter of truth and justice. I find their answer fascinating. They say, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. The question naturally arises in our minds, were the midwives being truthful? It's very possible that Hebrew women delivered more quickly, were more independent and less inclined to call upon the midwives for assistance. Perhaps God indeed did spare his daughters for this season of oppression to ease the effects of the curse, to relieve them of their pains and the links of labor. That is quite possible. But I do believe that another reading is, a, is at least as likely. I think that perhaps these midwives were pulling a ruse on Pharaoh. They refused to comply and participate with his command. They exploited his ignorance, exercising their expertise to their own advantage. I find it intriguing that Pharaoh, whether he believed them or not, did not punish them. God's hand of protection was over them. It's possible that these midwives found Pharaoh in a place of political vulnerability. And so rather than directly defy him, which would assure their death in retaliation among the Hebrews, they chose to give him an answer that was at least tenable, if only partly true, to give themselves an out and to save face for Pharaoh politically. Perhaps Pharaoh considered the political risk too high to cause riots among the Hebrews for executing these women. One commentator even suggests that these women were not even Hebrew. The text does not make that clear, though their names do sound more like Hebrew names than Egyptian names. Whatever the reason, these brave women like Rahab after them, who would delude her own king in protection of the Hebrew spies, express their loyalty to God and his people by their commitment to justice. Now, of course, their response raises some ethical concerns. Did these midwives lie? How do we apply the ninth commandment to their situation to not bear false testimony? In my readings and studies on this topic, I have come to the conclusion that in this fallen world, there are times when deception is necessary in matters of warfare in police undercover operations, and yes, in the dire need to prevent great evil against the innocent. R.C. Sproul establishes a principle he calls giving truth to whom truth is due. And in this particular situation, we find an authority figure who does not deserve the truth. Other examples in Scripture include, of course, Rahab, who defies her own king to protect the Hebrew spies in the book of Judges. We find Obadiah, who protected a hundred prophets of the Lord in 1 Kings 18, right under the nose of his master, King Ahab. 
The woman, J.L., tricks Sisera into her tent and strikes him down dead with a peg. King Zedekiah orders Jeremiah to give a false answer to the nobles who would no doubtedly question him about a private conversation in Jeremiah 38. God himself sends Samuel to anoint King David under a pretense of offering sacrifice to protect him from a jealous and murderous King Saul. We are called to honor authorities. We are called to be truthful. And yet I believe in Scripture there are times when we may be permitted to deny truth to those who would commit grievous evil against the lives of the innocent. We see modern-day examples in this past century as Europeans needed to be called upon to deceive Nazis, to not only deny them the truth of the whereabouts of hiding Jews, but to perhaps turn them in false directions. Perhaps this principle could apply elsewhere where there is grave oppression and persecution. Matters of truth and justice require us to be committed to the preservation of life for the glory of God and the good of humanity. I doubt that many of us will have need to apply this principle in our lifetimes, standing up to oppressive justice by suppressing the truth. There is no warrant in this text or anywhere else in the Bible to cheat on one's taxes because one thinks they're unfair or any other matter of deception against a legitimate government. But I believe that the call to truth and justice burdens us to be strong advocates for life, to labor in our spheres of influence to pass legislation that makes abortion illegal, that requires it to be even safer while it remains legal, and to labor to make it as rare as possible. For some of us, a commitment to life may mean political involvement. It may call upon us to labor to improve our nation's laws. For others of us, it may call us to the front lines of crisis ministry, ministering to women who are trying to make vital life and death decisions. It may be offering counsel and comfort to those grieving with guilt and shame over past decisions that they have later regretted. For all of us, it's a calling for us to establish the church as a community of grace and compassion that shows dignity and respect to people as sinners who are redeemable in the hands of our Savior, Jesus Christ. As a matter of justice, we would condemn violence as a solution, such as the assassination of abortionist George Tiller in recent years, and rather commend those who sacrifice themselves and their jobs and their freedom to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. But I believe that a call to be pro-life does not stop in matters of abortion. It may not necessarily mean that you expand the numbers in your household by natural birth or adoption or by helping others to do the same, though these practices are quite commendable. It may not necessarily mean for you to sponsor a child. 
half a world away or to labor to help curb the trafficking of children. Hundreds of thousands of them caught up in the modern-day slave trade. But it does mean for each of us to live Christianly, Christ-like, distinct from a culture, to promote justice for the sake of the gospel of God's grace. Wherever there is injustice, wherever human life is devalued, we are called to represent the king of righteousness, who is a father to the fatherless, a husband to widows, applying the healing balm of the gospel to give relief to those in great distress. While such efforts require perseverance against a great tide of evil, we see in our passage how the midwives were sustained by a vision of the glory of God and the good of humanity. Verses 20 and 21 describe God's reaction of how he showed kindness to the midwives, giving them families of their own, indicating that he indeed is glorified and pleased with faithful and sacrificial obedience. Now, obedience to God does not always result, does not always give us the results that we desire. These two women did not know whether they would live or die as a result of their actions. But obedience to God in faith always brings glory to Him. And God can use that to bring great blessing in the lives of others. And so it is that God showered His blessing upon the people who continue to increase by their own faithfulness and by the courage of these two women. In fact, we might say that these women provide a model for Moses' mother to follow upon in years to come. It was through Moses and the people of God that God would bless the world with a revelation of his law, the testimony of his grace in redeeming them out of Egypt and the eventual coming of the Savior, Jesus Christ. But notice how the passage ends in verse 22. Though Pharaoh had been thwarted for a time, he did not give up. Evil never rests seeing that the Hebrew midwives could not be counted on. He puts the burden on his own people to cast the boy babies into the Nile to be devoured or drowned. And so God's people must be vigilant. The cunning serpent is determined to suppress the people of God and do everything possible to prevent God's redemption from reaching this dark world. Well, thankfully, the enemy's plot is foiled Every time. Like his forerunner Moses, Jesus was born into an environment hostile to little boys, threatened by wicked men who were determined to keep their grips on power. The Apostle Matthew records for us that King Herod, on hearing of the Savior's birth in Bethlehem, ordered his men to slaughter every little boy in that vicinity. Revelation 12 offers us a graphic vision of this threat seen from the heaven's vantage point. John writes of seeing an enormous red dragon standing before a woman giving birth, ready to devour the Christ child. And yet this child, who would rule the nations, escapes from the grip of the dragon. 
in verse 17, goes on to say that the dragon, in a rage, went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. That's us. We are in a war, in a great battle. Remember the words of Winston Churchill to Britain during their darkest hour, that we must persevere to prevail. Friends, we are called to persevere. And we do so on the basis of a hope that the battle is already won. You and I in Christ are on the victor's side. Our champion has slain the dragon. He has crushed the serpent's head. And though our enemy continues to steal and kill, deceive and destroy, he is a defeated foe. And yet the battle continues. And so I ask you, are you enlisted for the war? Are you on the Savior's side? Our conquering king leads not valiant heroes, but simple men and women, mere weaklings who are foolish enough to trust in his promise of eternal salvation, willing to die to self and to live to make his name great on the earth. As his followers, we are called to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with the Lord our God. No past deed disqualifies us, and no liabilities excuse us from service. His mercy clears all of our iniquities, and his grace is more than sufficient to carry us that we might persevere until the battle is complete. A 15-year-old girl found herself with child after a forced encounter with a wealthy man in her community. Living in Charlotte, North Carolina in the 1950s, she was faced with two choices, abort or leave home. She heroically chose life. The messages of Billy Graham had convinced her to protect her baby and to trust that God would be faithful not only in her eternal salvation, but that if she would obey him, he would provide for her. Months later, she gave birth to Dickie Knowles, the speaker at our recent Men and Boys Stakeout Dinner. Dickie tells about how he, after years of troubled youth, in a major league baseball career plagued by alcohol addiction, Christ brought him to himself. Now for nearly three decades, Dickie has spoken in more than 3,000 school and other venues, warning children of the dangers of addiction and sharing message of eternal salvation in Christ to untold numbers of people. There is nobody on earth that Dickie reveres more than his late mother a woman who chose life. The simple, the weak, the nobody can make a difference. Trusting in God's unfailing promises and determined to live out the implications of the gospel for his glory and the good of all people. Let's pray. Gracious God of life, 
you who have given us everything we need for life and godliness. We bring this heavy matter before you and ask that you might make us a people filled with grace and compassion upon a culture dying, that we might be your spokesmen and your ambassadors to proclaim the message of hope that comes alone through Jesus Christ, our only Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.